This is the Freelancer's Friend. Greetings if you're a new listener. Thanks for taking the time to have a listen. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back, my friend. I'm your host, Victor Taylor, and the show is all about helping freelancers to enjoy lasting success. We have a variety of guests and some excellent advice and insights for you on your freelancing journey. Remember to subscribe, give any feedback, or ask anything you like because you'll always receive a reply. And please share the podcast with your freelancer friends. About this episode, it can be difficult to find projects that you really love while also getting paid what you deserve. But you don't need to be a marketing expert or a social media influencer to find and attract your dream clients. Matt Essam is a business coach, best-selling author and keynote speaker, working with creative freelancers and small businesses to help them win high-value clients, while also enjoying meaningful and fulfilling work. In this episode, he talks about pricing your services, dealing with clients who are initially put off by your fee level, and more to help you in this area. We also chatted about your mindset and other good stuff that can make a real difference for you in your business. Our discussion is based off the back of his latest book, Create and Prosper, How to Find Your Dream Clients and Build a Freelance Business You Love, which you can find a link for below. Welcome Matt, thanks for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me on, Victor. My name is Matt Essam. I am a business coach that works exclusively with award-winning creative freelancers and agency owners. You have a book out, which is uh, probably the main thing that we're going to be talking about today, and it's called Create and Prosper, How to Find Your Dream Clients and Build a Freelance Business That You Love. And it's full of excellent advice. I've had a chance just to scan through it so far. It's got really good advice on various aspects of freelancing. I'd like to focus on one section, or at least begin on that, sec- on that section, which is called Stop Selling Your Time. Clients can sometimes say that they don't have a budget, or other excuses, or they don't see value in the services that you're providing. And freelancers often react by cutting the price or changing the scope of the project. So why does that happen? Why do you think freelancers react in that way? Well, I guess when someone tells you you're too expensive or they don't have the budget, it's easy to believe that because someone's just said that you're too expensive. Um, in my experience, the problem isn't the fact that you're too expensive because you can only be expensive in comparison to something. Usually the problem is that you don't have, or the client doesn't have, a frame of reference. Um, so really it's about the conversation you're having with your client rather than you changing what you charge or or what the budget is now there will be times when clients do have very specific budgets that they say that they can't change but i've got countless examples of clients that i've worked with where their prospects the people they're talking to have said oh this is our budget 
you know, we've got 12,000 pounds and that's it. And then, you know, we've done some coaching together and they've managed to get that budget up to like 25,000 pounds. So it's all relative. And I think the mindset when we reduce our rates and we change the scope of work is, well, I just need this client and, and the control is very much in the, in the kind of client's hands. And it's, and it's bred from what I refer to as a scarcity mindset of like, oh God, this is this only opportunity. And so we have to do whatever it takes in order to get this opportunity. And so that's why I think it happens. I think it happens because we believe that there is this limited opportunity to get this client. And so we essentially do whatever we think we can in order to, to win that client. Kind of the fear of losing the client and not knowing where the next client's going to come from. Yeah, so you exactly. need to try and make sure you keep them happy and, uh, What's the best response instead then? Um, well, if someone says you're too expensive, uh, I usually, there's a, there's a kind of few steps to the process. What can tend to happen is that when someone says that, it actually triggers our deepest fears and, and there's quite an emotional response to it. It's, oh God, I am too expensive. Because especially if we've raised our prices recently or we've got into the mindset that, oh, you know, coronavirus is changing the landscape and no one can afford anything anymore. Then as soon as somebody says that fear, someone calls it out, it creates that emotional trigger. So if I said to you, Victor, like, you're a green skinny Martian, that's probably not going to trigger any emotional response from you. But if I said something... Maybe. <laughs> that, yeah, maybe, yeah. But if I said something that you deep down believed to be partially true then that's going to create that emotional response. So the first thing I watch for when someone says, you know, oh, that's way out of budget or God, that was way more than we're expecting or it's really expensive is what's the emotional response that comes up for me? And the first thing that I need to do is breathe and just take a few seconds just to kind of allow that to dissipate and be really present and, and just kind of, hold that space for the client. So that's the first thing that I, I, I do. The second thing is then I acknowledge their concern. So rather than just going straight back with this, well, you know, it's not that expensive. And I see all these things on LinkedIn, like uh, everyone says good design is expensive. Wait till they see how much bad design costs and things like that. There's these kind of very emotional, reactive kind of defensive. I'm just going to come back with something at you yeah defensive and that's never really going to get anywhere with the client so the second thing I do is I always acknowledge their concern so I'll say something like um, I totally understand that that feels like a lot of money for you right now and then the third thing I'll do is I will get their permission to just explore that a little bit further so I'll just say um, I, I really understand Victor that feels like a lot of money for you right now do you mind if I ask you a quick question about that? All right, so that, that's the third step. And then fourthly, what I'll do is depending on the conversation that we've had, I might bring something back that they've said in the conversation. Or I might simply just say, I'm curious, when you say that's too expensive, what are you comparing that to? Hmm. What are you comparing that to? Good question. 
And so they might say something like, oh, well, another design quote we've had or oh, what we think the industry standard is or whatever. And so then you get the chance to explore that thinking with them. So, you know, if you're comparing it to another designer, then tell me some of the reasons why we're having this conversation and you're not just using that other designer. Mm. What if they're not able to answer that question if they can't really compare it to anything? They think it's just, they've just had that reaction and they think it's too expensive, but they haven't got anything to compare it to. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about it is that they must be comparing it to something because otherwise it's just a number, right? So if I said it's £45,000 a lot of money, what's your initial reaction? Mm. It is. Yeah, okay. Is £45,000 a lot of money for a two-bed... what you're paying for. Yeah, for a two-bed uh, apartment in central London. Mm. No. So there's no frame of reference, right? Mm-hmm. So what's probably happening is they're using an internal frame of reference. So when I said it's forty-five thousand pounds a lot of money, what what did you, where did your internal frame of reference go? Mm. I wasn't trying to react personally when you asked uh, just then, but I do see your point. Um, when you're actually having a conversation with somebody, they've already got their frame of reference, whatever the service is. They've probably already got uh, an idea in mind of what the price should be. Mm, absolutely. And so then we get to explore. Let's say, oh, I don't know what I'm comparing it to. We can then create that frame of reference. Well, you know, what do you think? If we did this work together, what do you think this would lead to? So what are you hoping to achieve? And we actually try and get down to some kind of tangible metrics. So whether you're creating video or graphics or whatever, like what are you hoping this does? Maybe it's brand awareness. Okay, well, what specifically will brand awareness allow you to do? What will more brand awareness give you? And so it might be like, well, ultimately, obviously, we're hoping to build more customers. Okay, and what's an average customer worth to you? And how long will this brand last and how long do you feel like this brand awareness will increase is it over the next two years three years five years what is this specifically going to do to do for you and so then we're creating a frame of reference just um educating them on the actual value not reacting emotionally to begin with just taking a step back and understanding from their perspective. And just, like I said, just educating them a bit and helping them to realize the value rather than telling them the value. Yeah, there's this great saying that goes around in um, kind of sales training circles, which is selling isn't telling. So if you find that you're doing most of the talking and telling the client, most of the time, you're not having a sales conversation, you're having a telling conversation. And people aren't convinced by you telling them things. They're convinced by themselves telling them things. Mm. You also say, sell them what they want and give them what they need. What do you mean by that? Mm. Well, if you think about something that you've bought recently, you probably, uh, something that's like, what I would class as like a 
a higher value purchase, not just a, I bought this two ninety nine charger on Amazon, something that was like a considered purchase for you. You bought that thing because you wanted it, right? You you didn't buy it because you needed it. We don't um, we don't part with lots of money apart from there's a few exceptions like paying taxes and the things that we have to do to actually keep the lights on. When we're actually thinking about buying services, we don't part with money because we think, oh, I need that thing. We, we part with it because we want something. There's a desire there. And so a lot of freelancers will try and sell people branding, for example, because they're like, well, you need a new brand. But the prospect isn't sitting there thinking, oh, God, we need a new brand. That's the thing we want. That might be what they need, but what they want is... Uh, more customers or what they want is higher engagement on social media or what they want is to feel confident that when they talk about their brand people are going to take them seriously and so I had a great conversation with a client the other day and she's an interior designer and she said I feel I feel a little bit uncomfortable about what I've discovered because she works with a lot of high-end companies in Germany that create office spaces and she said by talking to these company founders what i what i've realized is that really what they want that office space because they want to feel cool right and it's quite a superficial thing and i don't know how i feel about that and i said okay well when they have this office what are the benefits of having this new office and she said well you know the employees feel better when they come to work um they feel proud of their workspace it creates a better environment i said well how does it impact people's mental health and things like that and we we dug into all of the things that were great about it um and i said so don't be concerned with selling people what they want even if it feels kind of superficial or egotistical because the thing that you're going to give them by showing up to that client in a and as a kind of creative problem solver the thing that you're going to give them is what they actually need so you sell them, you get them across the line on the thing they say they want, but then you deliver them the thing that's going to get them the result, the outcome. It's the uh, features versus features versus benefits kind of thing that a lot of people yeah absolutely know about, but a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like the difference between. Um, when Apple sell an iPhone and they, they talk about all the features like a bigger screen and et cetera, et cetera. But like people don't really want that. They want the new iPhone to say they've got the new iPhone. Hmm. Okay, so most people don't know what to charge their clients in the first place, never mind whether it's overpriced or underpriced. So how can someone figure this out in the best way? Yeah, well, I think... It's a really great question, and I think it, it depends on where you're at in your journey, in your freelance journey. So if you're just starting out, then I don't think there's anything wrong with using in what I would term as industry rates. So what kind of people charge hourly or um, what type of things people bill. I don't think there's anything... You've, been, you've been... Sorry, you've been in web work and design work in the past mm -hmm. yourself and yeah. there are certain industries like that where freelancers charge a wide kind of 
variety of prices. Mm. Uh, so there's no real no real set standard price of what to charge. Yeah, so I think like a website is a great example. And when you first start out, you've really got to charge what you feel happy with. So maybe you've only built a couple of websites before. I remember like when I first started building websites, we one of our first websites that we built was for the medical society at our university. And I think we charged 500 pounds for that website. Now that was back in kind of, I don't know, 2010 or 2011. So 500 pounds was slightly more, but not, not a huge deal more. Um, but at that time that felt like a really, that felt like a lot of money for us. You know, it felt like we were being really well and we, there was two of us that did it. So we actually split it 250 quid, but it took us, oh, I don't know, maybe a month, a month and a half, something like that in our spare time. And 250 quid was like, well, that's our rent paid for the month. So that felt great to us. So I think when you first start out, the, the important thing is like how you feel about delivering those projects. And the problem comes when we undercharge and we start to almost begrudge or resent our clients because we feel like we're doing a lot of work, putting in a lot of effort, and we're not getting fairly compensated for it. Yeah, you're making me think about the very first website yeah. I did for a business client in 2002, 2003, and it was for a local hairdressers, and I just said, oh, just give me 50 quid. And because I was just uh, kind of learning my craft at the same time, so the website took weeks and weeks, and they wanted extras doing, but I had no kind of set process in place to let them know that I'm only going to do this or and that for that, that amount. Yeah, and then they wanted... So, so just starting out, that is just good advice. Yeah, and then they want all that. So then the, the problem comes when you've done that for a while, you've honed your craft, you're good at what you do, and then you start thinking, well, I don't really know how much to charge. And there's two key approaches that, that we take when I'm working with my clients. There's two types of pricing that we use. There's what I call cost-based pricing and value-based pricing. So we never, ever encourage people to charge by the hour because it doesn't work for the freelancer and it doesn't work for the client um, in fact the better at your craft that you get the less money you earn if you charge by the hour because the quicker you're doing it right um, so we either say use cost-based pricing or value-based pricing now cost-based pricing is kind of splitting things into thirds so uh, one third goes to the actual the time you spend on it and so i'm not saying you charge by the hour hour but let's say right um I want to pay myself uh, £20 an hour, as an example. So the time you actually spend on that project, another third goes to the amount it costs for you to actually run your business, to keep the lights on, to do your marketing, etc. And then another third goes towards your intellectual property. So your processes, all the things that you've learned up until this point, the systems, the software, the training that you've had to put in to, to do that. And so that's cost-based pricing and that works at scale. So we can still, you know, I work with a variety of people from one-man bands all the way up to kind of uh, six, seven-person agencies. And that still works at scale. So you say, well, what's my staff cost on that to deliver this project? What's the cost of us running the business? And what's the cost of our IP? And it's, it's a third for each, roughly. 
Um, so that's that. That's how to work that out. Then value-based pricing is slightly trickier, but is what we try and work everyone towards. So value-based pricing is relative to the value that you're delivering to the end client. And this is where you have to have more conversations around what it's worth to them. So this is where you have to get a little bit, uh, I suppose, mathematical or you know, a little bit deeper into the details of what do you hope this does and, and where do you think this is going to take you. Now, it's never exact science, but it's, you know, let's say you're doing an animation video. Where are you going to use this video? Um, what, what do you hope it's going to do? Is it going to get more people to subscribe to your platform? Is it going to be used for investment? Like, and, and you kind of dig into that and you figure out what it's worth to them and then you charge relative to that. So again, it's determining how they value the service, how, they, how much they value it. Yeah, it, it is to an extent, but it's also about what they're going to get from it in, in the long run. So let's say, you know, let's say you do an animation and it's for a particular campaign and that campaign is going to end in three months time. Um, but it potentially is going to generate a million pounds in revenue over those three months, then that's what you're comparing it to. Whereas if it's an animation that you can use for the next five to 10 years, um, then that becomes a different, you know, when you think about licensing and where you're using it, et cetera, et cetera, value-based pricing doesn't take that into consideration. It just lets you do what you want with it, but it's in relation to how you're going to use it. So, what we actually do with our clients is we help them to create offers and packages for specific types of businesses. So when you really niche down and you get clear on who you want to work with, this process becomes a lot easier because you know that these kind of clients use these type of animations for this to try and get this particular outcome. And so when you create a package, you know that roughly when you sell an animation, it might be, you know, I've got a client that does a minute a minute and a half worth of animation and you can sometimes charge upwards of £25,000 for it. Um, but it's it's all relative. It's the type of people that are using that, what they're getting from it, the revenue that they're generating from it. And so if you're going to go into value-based pricing, you've got to be willing to explore that in a conversation and work out where your kind of product or where your service sits within the context of that business and what they're trying to achieve. Mm, good. Could you say a little bit about how you hang on to clients once you have them or or keep them coming back? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I like to think about a client relationship in stages. Um, and usually the first stage is more of a transformation. So it's more of a how do I get them from A to B? Um, and that's usually what your kind of core product is designed to do. And then once they have that transformation, once they get to B, what's typically going to happen is they're going to have a new set of problems or challenges. And so where most people fall down is they don't address those new problems and challenges and they don't create a service that solves those new problems. They're just kind of like, right, we build websites, we build a website for you, you've got from A to B, here's your website and off you go. So an example of like, um, solving new problems would be 
well, how do we make sure that our website doesn't go down? How do we make sure that it doesn't get hacked? How do we make sure that we're continually getting the right people to the website, et cetera, et cetera. So I would then create a service which specifically solve those problems. And so that product is only for people who we've built a website for. Mm, yeah, great. And that's kind of where your retained work comes in. And the, the concept really, Victor, is that as long as you're solving those problems consistently still and delivering tangible return on investment and you're a nice person and they enjoy talking to you, there's no reason why that client would go anywhere else. So one of the things that we offer on our programs is, is once they've been through our nine-month program, we then offer something that's called the inner circle and that's about continuing to work with us. And at the moment, we have about a 60 to 70% retention rate. So, yeah, in in our um, programs, one of the things that we do um, is that we essentially keep delivering value and keep solving problems for people so that they kind of have no reason to stop coaching with us. Like as long as we're helping them to earn more money, keep finding better clients, then every time they spend money every month with us, as long as that money is giving them more than they're spending, then they've kind of got no reason to go anywhere else. Okay, so this all helps um, helps a freelancer to have a secure business to make sure that the client still sticks around and that you can still carry on serving them after the initial work is done. But I've, I've just remembered that uh, also in the book you talk about how security is an illusion and I, I think that too because an employed position isn't necessarily as secure as it seems. Would you say that freelancing is more or less secure in the long run than a job? Well, for me, I believe that freelancing... I mean, before we get into that, we've got to define freelancing a little bit. So some people talk about freelancing as kind of contracting and going into an agency and working on a contract. For me, freelancing, like real freelancing, is about being self-employed, going out into the world and finding your own clients. And so the reason I think that's more secure is because you're in control. And so if you know how to do that, if you have a process to do that consistently and you understand how to take someone from being a stranger to being a long-term client, then you have ultimate security. The ultimate security comes from internal resourcefulness, your ability to go out there to create and capitalize on opportunities. Mm. When you are in employment... That's what I love most about it. Yeah, exactly. When you're in employment, you hand that over to somebody else. Somebody else pays your paycheck at the end of every month and you aren't in control of that business and it generating clients. So if that person is not running that business well and it goes bust or something happens, then you have no control over that. You can go and find another job, but you know then you just go through the exact same process that you would be doing. The only difference is that when you're employed, you go and uh, interview once every couple of years or however long you change job. When you're a freelancer, you go and interview every week or every month. Mm -hmm. Now, this might be a bit of a tangent, but... 
how did you get into what you're doing now, coaching people in the first place? How did you transition? What do you enjoy about it and what do you get out of it? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, so I, if we rewind to back in about 2015, I had built a freelance business that I could run from anywhere in the world. I'd, I'd read a book called The 4-Hour Workweek and I was obsessed with this concept of like the digital nomad lifestyle and scaling businesses and not trading time for money. And so I'd built this kind of micro agency that I could run from anywhere in the world. And we had a little team of freelancers all around the world who would service our clients. And, and I would essentially just deal with the clients and deal with the new business. And I'd been, I'd been traveling for about four or five months. I found myself in Canada. And I specifically remember this moment. I, I still have a vivid memory of it. I'm sat on this ski slope in Canada. I'm overlooking this incredible vista, like the Rocky Mountains. And I take my phone out to take a photo and post it to Instagram. And I get this really kind of jagged feeling inside of me that there's a real disparity between what I'm portraying to the world and what's actually going on behind the scenes. And I think that's quite common now. It's quite talked about a lot. But at the time, I don't think it was. And I realized that I was portraying this incredible lifestyle and this amazing business that I had. But the reality was I was actually deeply unfulfilled and I wasn't enjoying my... I'd got to the point where I wasn't enjoying my experience of traveling. And the reason I wasn't enjoying it was because it was just my clients were there just as a means to an end. They were just there to fund the next thing that I was doing. And after a while, that just gets, you know, there's, there's, it's just empty. There's no purpose there. Um, and the reality was I had a bunch of clients that treated me pretty poorly, that never paid me on time. Um, and I, the whole thing just lacked a sense of purpose. And it actually took a death in my family for me to kind of wake up and um, realize that, you know, um, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. And, and I need to find something. I need to find this sense of purpose in, in what I'm doing. And so I came back to the UK and just did a bit of soul searching. You know, I was watching Ted talks, um, reading books, just, just trying to find some answers. And I was introduced to this book, by Daniel Priestley called mm -hmm. The Entrepreneur Revolution. And it became clear to me really quickly that there was this big disparity between the art of creativity and what you talked about earlier, Victor, of kind of like mastering your craft. I'd call that the art of creativity, getting good at what you do. And then the business of creativity. I realized they were two very different things and I had neglected the business of creativity. Um, and I, I had kind of just thought that being good at what you do was enough to find the right kind of clients that treated you well and that, you know, you loved working with and that paid you on time and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I quickly realized that it wasn't. And so I actually decided to work with this. I kind of, the, the book resonated with me so much that I sought, sought Daniel Priestley out. I went to some of his workshops um, and I ended up working with him and his team and invested, you know, quite a lot of money and quite a lot of time learning about all of this, this stuff. And what was really interesting was that as I, cause I was still running my business in the background, you know, I still had bills to pay and, and things, 
but I started to transition more towards kind of consultancy. And what I was finding was that when I just focused on the clients that I really loved working with, they were, they were all creatives, basically. They were all people who were building really cool, interesting, creative businesses. And I started to offer some of the things that I was learning from Daniel Priestley and some of the things that I'd learned previous to that. Um, I started to just offer kind of free business advice. I said, look, this is what we're doing. We're a, a web kind of digital agency, but we're just going to start offering this free business advice along with our services. And what was incredible was that the free business advice that we were offering started to get our clients better results than the marketing that we were doing for them. And I realized very quickly that a lot of the marketing and the kind of social stuff that we were doing was 10 times less powerful without these fundamental business principles in place. And then all of a sudden, people started saying, well, can you tell us more about this? Could you run a workshop on this? Could you do this, that, and the other? And, and the more I started to implement the stuff I was learning in my business, the more clients wanted help with that stuff. And it just evolved to the point where I realized that all of that stuff that I was doing in that business was fairly useless without the fundamental principles. And I realized that I definitely wasn't the only one who had neglected that business side of creativity. And so I just started offering that as a paid service and it built from there. And, and I just actually fell in love with it. I, I realized that if you master this stuff, if you master some of these fundamental things, it gives you so much opportunity to have more impact with your work to you know work with people that you share values with that pay you what you deserve on time you have great relationships with you like the business is the vehicle for that kind of ultimate creative expression um and when i realized that i was like this this needs to be my thing like this is what i love doing i really love helping people to kind of unlock that potential that's already there in a lot of cases you know we didn't need to add more we needed to actually take things away um, and get them focused on the right things and help them with their mindset. And so that's kind of how the the coaching business evolved from what I was doing previously. That's great. Uh, are you just still doing it on your own? Are you, you provide all the coaching yourself or have you got a, a team? Or Yeah, we've got a small team. So the way that I work is that um, our programs are based on three core pillars and we essentially have a mentor for each one of those pillars. Um, and then I kind of act more as a, a guide, I suppose, that sits in between so that if people are, are getting a little bit stuck or they need extra help, I can kind of jump in and, and guide them. But really, I've come to realize that um, I love coaching, um, but I have a limited capacity and I want to impact more people. Um, but also, a lot of the stuff that I do is taken by people who will never actually be clients so people that read my book and just never become a client uh, people that follow me on social media um, and I want to help people who will never become a client as much as people who are clients and so I want to spend my time doing more podcasts writing more books putting content out there doing um, my own podcast doing uh, events and workshops because that's the thing that's going to allow me to impact more people um and you know the more one-to-one -one coaching i do the less time i get to spend doing that seems like it's uh, really fulfilling for you now too yeah it's 
it's interesting. I, I I really feel for people who are in a place where they don't know what direction to take because I remember that. I remember just thinking it's it's an ex an existential crisis almost. You know, it's like what am I doing all this for? And I even I've had two or three calls today with people um, interested in working with me who are kind of at that point. You know, they've been doing what they do for twenty years. Um, they're starting to have this crisis in confidence. And they're just a little bit lost. And it's a horrible feeling. Um, but the cool thing is when you go through the process that I went through of kind of uncovering all the stuff that's already in front of you, um, and we go through these processes with our clients, it gives them this sense of purpose. And they realize, oh, actually, I'm more than just an illustrator. I'm more than just a designer. I'm in a unique position with all of my life experience and the things that I enjoy doing in my spare time. I'm in this unique position to solve a problem for someone and to really help someone specific. And that sense of purpose and that knowing that you have the ability to create that impact is life-changing, really. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, and going back to pricing, once you have your pricing worked out properly and you're satisfied with what you're getting, you're not resenting your clients and so on, that it seems like a pretty good basis having the fulfillment that you need and, yeah I, th I think it's and knowing that you're on the yeah yeah i just i think there's there's a there's actually a baseline that most people don't seem to quite hit um but it's that combination it's like you've got to love the people so we when we talk about ideal clients we we look at four key things first thing is you've got to love working with them you know, it's not enough just to say I can tolerate them because they pay the bills. You've actually got to really enjoy jumping on a call with them. You've really got to enjoy um, spending time with them, learning about their business, someone that you would choose to spend time with even if you weren't getting paid. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, yeah, the second thing is you've got to, um, they've got to have a problem that you can and want to solve. They've got to have like a specific thing that they have a challenge with that you know, because that's kind of where that impact and purpose comes from. You realize that what you're doing is actually solving a problem for someone. Um, the third thing is that they've got to be able to have the access to the resources to solve that problem. So, so I, I don't like saying they've got to be able to afford to do it because a lot of people don't think that they can afford to do it until you figure out how to help them do that. So they've got to have access to the resources to be able to solve that problem. Um, and then the final thing is you've got to be able to have conversations with them. You've got to be able to go to a networking event or connect on LinkedIn or pick up the phone and actually start conversations with people. Because if you don't have that, you don't have what's called a, a route to market, essentially. Um, so you can have the first three things, but if you don't have that last thing, then you're a little bit stuck. And so when we tick those four boxes that we kind of talk about them as our, mm -hmm. our ideal clients. I've, I've spoken about this. I've spoken about this on a previous episode with someone about that last point. Uh, if you're a really shy or reserved kind of freelancer, scared of sales, putting yourself out there, is there any kind of way to, get around that yeah absolutely i mean it's so interesting when people say to me 
uh, I'm uh, I'm introverted, right? I hate sales. I hate talking to people. And I always say to them, okay, I, I understand that. Quick question for you. Do you have friends? And they say, yeah, of course I've got friends. I say, okay, cool. So I don't. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, and and it's like, well, you know, if you have friends or if you've made friends in the past, then you have the ability to do that. And so it's the concept. It's, so it's like recommending a movie. Yeah, exactly. It's the it's the like um, perception of sales. It's what we've made sales mean in our head that's the problem, not actually just making connections with other human beings and helping them to solve problems. It's this whole thing that we build up in our head about what it means and, oh, we've got to do this sales pitch and da-da-da-da-da. But actually great sales is just about mm. great relationships. It's definitely a good place to start, at least. Yeah, 100%. So is there anything else that you could add to what we've said so far? Um, I think the, the biggest thing is people understanding how the story that they tell themselves on a daily basis is usually the thing that is keeping them stuck. So we all, we all have a story about life, about the world, uh, people are, I am... And what's really powerful is being able to detach yourself from that story and see it for what it is, to really separate the facts from the story. Uh, and whenever I talk to potential clients or whenever I talk to my clients, I'm always listening for what is the story? What is the story that they're bringing to this? Because the fact is that we've just had a global pandemic. It's up to you what story you create about that and so i think that's like if i had to add anything yeah. then i think yeah whatever it is in life it's what you tell yourself the situation is yeah absolutely yeah and it's and it's like we get so caught up in that story it's like watching a film you know if you go and watch a really engaging film you forget that you're sat in a dark cinema next to a bunch of people that you don't know and you even you know you don't hear the person behind you chewing popcorn but if the story's like really disengaging and not compelling you start to notice these other things and so we get so good at telling that story and we create such vis visceral images in our mind of how life's going to be and what all this means that we get so sucked into that story that we can't distinguish the story the film from the cinema and it's powerful because it, it influences everything you do. It influences the actions that you take. It influences um, the thoughts that you have. It influences pretty much everything about your existence and what you manifest into your life because you've got this story and your brain is, is just like a heat-seeking missile. It wants to find things that are in line with that story. So if you tell yourself the story of there's no work out there, there's no work out there, there's no work out there, your mind will just constantly find things to back up that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen people do this kind of thing to themselves. And even if you try to help them yourself, they, they're, just kind of, they're just kind of transfixed with their, their own self-talk. 
Yeah, absolutely. How do you personally keep an eye on your own self-talk and is there any kind of method that you have uh, or have you just come to a point where you where you don't let any kind of false thoughts interfere? Um, yeah, there are some really practical things and actually just on the note of kind of mental health awareness week this week, I'm going to be putting out some things on LinkedIn a little bit about stuff like this. Um, I It's very easy to say this stuff and if you're listening to the podcast it's very easy oh you know this guy Matt is a business coach he's got all this shit together but the reality is I've had to deal with this in my life as well so when I was in my early 20s I went through a period where I used to have severe panic attacks um, and I was crippled with anxiety to the point where I didn't want to leave the house to the point where it affected my social life my personal relationships um, and it took me oh, wow. a long time to to get over that. Um, and there are some really powerful tools out there. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is is one of them, CBT. But the biggest thing when we're we're talking about mental health and story and narrative and the things, the way that we talk to ourselves is awareness. We've got to be aware because until someone says, taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you're sitting in a cinema watching this film, you don't know that you're sitting in the cinema watching the film. You're engrossed in that film. You feel like you're part of it. So the first thing is being aware that there is a story, but there is a narrative. And the voice in your head that talks to you all the time isn't God. Uh, it's not the truth. It's just the voice in your head. Right? And what we need to do is we need to learn to separate ourselves from the voice in our head. Because most people think that that voice is them. And so when they say something like, oh, I'm an, I'm an unconfident person or, oh, you're never going to succeed at that thing, they take it as fact. But if you imagine that somebody else said that to you and you heard that, you might react differently to it or you might have a counter argument to it. So the first thing that we need to do is become acutely aware of that voice, of those stories that we tell ourselves and and get good at listening, get good at observing and going, oh, yeah, look, there's that story again. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most powerful tools um, is something called The Work by Byron Katie. Uh, and I came across this years ago. Byron Katie was kind of one of the first people to, to kind of talk about this concept. And I'm not sure if I'll be able to remember the exact steps, but essentially she will always start with what's the belief or what's the story. So let's just get that out on the table. So separating the fact from the story, that's step one. Um, the second step is asking yourself, is that true? So the statement we've just made, like, is that true? And so our mind might go, yeah, of course it's true. So then we need to really examine that. Okay, how do I know that it's true? Like what evidence could I bring to say like a court of law to say that this is true, right? Am I 100%, could I 100% say this is fact or is there some of this that could be up for debate? And so we're looking at that story objectively. Then we need to ask ourselves, how do I feel and how do I behave when I tell myself that story? When I tell myself that story, who do I become? Who am I? 
And then the final question we ask ourselves is who would I be without that story? What would I be doing differently without that story? What would be possible for me without that story? And they're actually four really, really powerful questions. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. That's a really great approach, definitely. Yeah. So if you've nothing else to add, we could wrap it up here. and. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. What's the one best place uh, someone could go online to find you? Yeah, I mean, my name is pretty unique, so Google is my friend. So if you Google Matt with two Ts and then SM spelled E-S-S-A-M, um, my website will come up. I'm pretty active on social media. The two platforms I use the most are LinkedIn and Instagram. Um, if you would like to grab a free copy of my book, I'll give you the actual uh, link, Victor, but people can just go to createandprosper.co.co. Um, and they can grab themselves a PDF version of the book. We're currently trying to get some uh, print copies out, but we haven't found a way to do that just yet. Um, but you can also, if you want a print copy, you can buy this book on, on Amazon. So if anything that we've talked about today does resonate with you, um, then you can go and grab a copy of this, Create and Prosper, on Amazon. Or if you'd like a free PDF copy, you can go to createandprosper.co. Excellent. And uh, here's a question. You're the first person I'm going to ask it to, but it's something I'm going to ask every guest at the end now. And it's, what's the, what's the one most important thing to do or be for freelancing success? What's the one most, most important thing to be or do for freelancing success? Um, be active would be my answer to that. And what I mean by that is most people are very passive. Most freelancers and even agency owners are very passive. They take whatever work comes to them. They're mainly getting work through referrals, word of mouth, things through their website. Um, so switch that around. Instead of being 80% passive and 20% active when you've not got enough work, be 80% active and 20% passive. And even when you're busy, Go out there and start building relationships with people. Um, reach out to people on LinkedIn, send emails, um, go to networking events, connect with people and constantly be active, constantly be putting yourself out there even when you feel like you're busy and you've got enough work on. Uh, and that will help you to create this abundance mindset or help you to realize that there's plenty of work out there. There's more opportunity than you would have a lifetime to to deal with or to capitalize on mm, excellent that's uh, really good thanks and uh, thanks again for joining us matt it's been a pleasure thank you for having me on the show victor <laughs>